Good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Support for the Arts Section comes from the League of Chicago Theaters. On today's program, I'll talk to a Chicago-based street artist who has a new solo exhibit at the Elmhurst Art Museum. We'll hear all about Scent Rock's creative journey. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me to talk about the world premiere thriller Enough to Let the Light In. Later, I'll take a closer look at the Museum of Contemporary Art's new Family Days program, and I'll take you with me to a west suburban park that's become home to a few dozen imaginary creature sculptures called... Alabrijes. All that's coming up. Thanks for making some time for arts and culture this morning. It's always interesting to hear how artists and creatives end up on their chosen paths. For artist Joseph Perez, aka Scent Rock, his trajectory seemingly changed when an artist visited his West Phoenix grade school over 25 years ago. That encounter sparked a creative flame that's opened up numerous avenues, including his first-ever solo museum show, which just went on display at the Elmhurst Art Museum. You know, I feel like this show was more for, like, the families that don't go to the museums that much. I think about, like, my family. You know, the first time they went to a gallery for one of my shows or the first time we go to, you know, visit a museum, sometimes they feel like that space isn't for them or they feel like they don't get it. And I feel like with this show, I literally created a story for people to get. The exhibit, Scent Rock, The Boy Who Wanted to Fly, focuses on the artist's alter ego. A young boy who wears a bright red bird's mask and goes by the name Bird City Saint. Museum visitors will be able to follow Bird City Saint's story through a series of mixed media pieces that include mural, paintings, sculptures, and video projection. I recently caught up with Scent Rock at the West Suburban Art Museum to talk about the new exhibit and the evolution of his work. His interest in art was sparked by a muralist who visited his first grade class. My first introduction to art was school. A muralist came to my school, you know, a visitor. Basically, this muralist came, did about a two-week mural project with us, and I was like in first grade. And from there, I was like, oh, this is cool. Like, you know, let me get more crayons and more coloring pencils and just keep making art. You know, like the old quote Picasso says, everyone's an artist when they're a kid. It's remaining artists as they grow up. So I think just as a kid, I fell in love with it. As he got older, his creative interests evolved. I think more as I got older and got more into, like, you know, my own when it came to, like, graffiti art and street art is really where I found, I found the love for it on my own. And you grew up in, in Phoenix. Is there a big street art graffiti scene there? Yeah, I, I was born and raised in West Phoenix. There's a lot of graffiti at that time growing up, you know, in the 90s. Gangbang culture, you know, gangbang culture was very prominent. Uh, all my family comes from that culture. And where we grew up is predominantly Mexican, American, hood. You know, you look at West Phoenix, where I'm from, you see what the culture is. So we saw, I saw a lot of graffiti, a lot of like um, gang graffiti, and then every now and then you'll get, you know, the like Chicano style murals of like field workers and, and Southwest and stuff like that. So that's kind of the environment that I was reflective of. Where does Scent Rock come from? Scent Rock comes from, it's funny because I'm 36 now and that's been with me since I basically was about 15 years old. I used to have a different name. I forget what it was, but I used to have a different name and I got in trouble with that at school, you know, whatever, <laughs> suspended, this and that. And me and my friends were like, oh, you need a new nickname. And my friend was like, you should go, you should go by Scent. That'll be your new, like, taggy name, S-C-N-T. I was like, oh, that is kind of cool. I like it. And he's like, yeah, you should do Scent, like Heaven Scent, because um, you're getting into, like, church and you're getting into your spirituality. At that time, I was like, that's cool. Like, I was going to youth groups and stuff. I was like, cool, I like it. And then Rock came, me and my friends started learning how to break dance. And everybody, you know, in that world has, like, a... Yeah. has a nickname whatever something rock or you know so I just it's just been something that's been with me ever since then and I don't know it's like I guess it just works a lot everybody most people call me just scent now so 
What's the first thing you ever sold? The first thing I ever sold? We're talking about art? Yeah. Um, first thing you created that you <laughs> made money. That I made money. That's a good question. I always been a little hustler, so I felt like, you know, probably in high school, I would, I would hustle, uh, you know, girls in high school love having their back, back then, you know, getting graffiti on their backpack, so I would do their name on their backpack and graffiti, and, you know, I think from there, that was my little hustle, stuff like that. I think that was probably my first, you know, taking commissions, let me, let me draw your name out type of thing. Okay. I can make money from doing what I like, is, is that yeah, something that became uh, clear? more like, yeah, doing something I like, but how can I, how can I get some of your money? So. <laughs> <laughs> Fast forward a little bit, Scent Rock made the move from Phoenix to Chicago about 12 years ago. You come to Chicago mm-hmm. in your early yeah, 20s. Yeah. What brought you here? Long story short, I needed something new. I needed a change of environment. Like I said, I was born and raised in Phoenix. All my family was there. And it, it wasn't too diverse. So I fell in love with Chicago's diversity, the cultural diversity, all the different you know walks of life when it came to like art and the creative culture. So I signed up at Columbia College and did about a year there and winded up dropping out just because I started working with local galleries and I just figured, you know what, school's been fun these two semesters, but I'm here, you know, I found what I wanted to do and work with galleries and make art. Yeah. So were you, like when you get to Chicago and you, whether you're in school or not, were you just, were you making stuff on the side and trying to get it into places? Yeah, when I first moved to Chicago and I was in school, doing my thing in school, which was great because of all the resources, and it gives you time to really like set your perspective of what you want to do. But really what I would do is I would do my art. You know, I did a lot more street art style stuff like stickers, weed paste, um, abandoned building, murals, stuff like that. And I remember printing out all my, my work and you know, just walking around to different galleries, showing them. And you know, at that time it was like, all right, that's cool. But we don't, you know, that's that's a very old traditional style of like, here's my portfolio. Yeah. Now you just kind of like send your, your your CV and your artist statement with like, you know, five samples of, you know, in your website. But then it's like, that's all I knew. I'm just like, yo, let me print out my art and show them. So that, yeah, when I first got here, that's all I did. Kind of like, just try to find my own lane. <laughs> If you're just tuning in, this is the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek, and I'm talking to Chicago-based artist Scent Rock. His new solo exhibition, The Boy Who Wanted to Fly, recently opened at the Elmhurst Art Museum. Virtually every piece in the show revolves around Scent Rock's alter ego, Bird City Saint. We're sitting in one of the gallery spaces surrounded by your pieces. And so this is uh, what you're known for, Bird City Saint? Yeah, this is the Bird City Saint, my signature character that I developed over time. It's almost like my alter ego. And a lot of the work, a lot of the storyline is very like reflective of my, my upbringing. It's kind of autobiographical in a sense. So, but I really wanted to make it, everybody could put themselves in the shoes or you know, put themselves in the bird mask, I guess. Yeah, it's a character I developed over the last, probably, you know, 10 years really, just developing this idea and getting it to this point. Is that a cardinal mask? Yes and no. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily define it just because I don't think it's super important. But at the end of the day, it basically is because the meaning of how I developed it is like, all right, I grew up in, I grew up in Phoenix, the football team is the Cardinals. All right, I come, I come out here to Chicago, the state bird is the Cardinal. So I'm like, oh, that's an easy move. Like, it, it speaks to both of my kind of, you know, demographic. And then I think too, the color red is so is so demanding of your attention. Like when you see a stop sign or a red light or an ambulance, there's always that red, you know, that, that color red. Cause I think it, it demands your attention. And that's what I wanted to do with my street art or my murals or my art. I really like, all right, how can I grab the viewer's eye? How can I grab someone's eye and make them notice my art? The title of this exhibit is The Boy Who Wanted to Fly. This character is your alter ego. Yeah, so the, you know, the idea of the boy who wanted to fly is, you know, if, it, if we're reflecting off of my childhood, it's like, all right, growing up in the hood, growing up with your family, you know, maybe for me, like my parents didn't graduate high school, 
visiting you know family members in prison stuff like that and you just think like all right at, at a young age seeing a lot of negativity you want to escape you want to fly you want to be free you want to feel that liberty like you don't want to feel like bound down so i think that's why it's like all right this boy wants to fly here's the visual narrative of this story of this character it's almost like the origin story of it and for me as a kid i always wanted to like all right i know there's more for me out there than just growing up in the hood and, and following the same footsteps as people around me. So that's why I really put the work of, there's this kid, I really wanted to be reflective of this kid that is looking for something more or looking for an escape. And then if you see throughout the work, there's this red bird that, that visits the, the young boy, you know, visits him. And that's the visitor that kind of inspires him to, to fly or teaches him how to fly. That's the climax of the story. There's a boy wanting to fly, meets the visitor, and then that visitor, which is the little bird, you see in the story, but gives him a spray can, and that boy lives out his dreams or lives out his creativity through his art. In addition to a number of paintings, there are some three-dimensional elements that bring the exhibit story to life. For example, our conversation took place in a gallery space that included a 10-foot sculpture of Bird City Saint lying on his back, looking up to the sky. I needed something that, you know, because you see the 2D art, you see the drawings, the paintings, that's cool, but I was like, all right, I need, I need something else that's going to add something to the story, make it more, more in your face, like more, like I want you to feel this story too. Like it's not just about, like for me, it's not just about the art, like oh, look at my techniques, look at the colors, the canvas, that's great. I love all that, the artist in me loves that. But the storyteller in me, the kid that's trying to connect with his audience, I needed something like, like this giant statue that was gonna, you know, make people feel like, oh, this is a little step into reality, you know. I love the 3D elements, and there's there's more than just the sculpture. You got like a playhouse over there, and then this this cart here. As far as the the Bird City Saint, why do you think people respond to it so well? To be honest, that's a good question. I'm still asking myself why so many people like this character or resonate with it. But I think ultimately, like me talking to you, I'm very open or I'm very genuine about my story or genuine about the message I'm trying to convey. And I think that is portrayed through my art that, you know, people relate to it because they can feel it too. Like, oh, maybe they're feeling a way like I would like to be able to fly away. And there's moments they want to feel that sense of freedom or whatever it is. I try to be as genuine as possible so people can relate to it. So I think just the idea of people being able to resonate with that, I suppose. <laughs> I'm, gra- I'm glad people like it. I'm glad the museum loved it. Yeah. So, you know, when they came to visit me in my studio, I was like, I don't know what they're gonna think, but they liked it, and they, you know, they hit me up maybe like a few months later, and like, we would like to offer you a show. Do you pick what gallery you want to show in? Because they have, you know, it's one, two, three, four gallery spaces. And I was like, well, honestly, I, I kind of want all of them. So they're <laughs> like, all right, if you want all of them, you can do it. You know, to me, it's just like, I'm like, oh my God, as I'm creating for the show, I'm just like, wow, what did I get myself into? Because one, you know, the museum gives me a budget, but for the ideas that I had and the concepts, like that budget was nothing for what I wanted to accomplish. And I really spent a lot of my own money to make this show happen because, uh, yeah, I just felt like the story needed, needed the extra, just the extra space for it, the larger opportunity that Elmhurst had provided for me. So, yeah, so. Make sure you guys come visit. <laughs> all new work? This is all new work, yep. All new work created specifically for this show. Obviously a lot of the themes are a little bit similar to the, the themes that I've been developing, but all work is new. Before this exhibit, you were already, your career is great. You're getting commissioned to do big projects in Chicago and other cities, but having like a solo show in a museum, was that something on your list? like? I want this. It was definitely on my list. It was 100%, this is 100% a lifetime dream of not just showing in a museum, but having my own solo exhibition, you know, and, and sharing the story how I want to share it. It's definitely been a dream. Because I've been doing my, you know, my street art, my public works and, and murals all over. And I've been LA, you know, I've been everywhere in, in the States. But I think when you get the platform and you work with a museum that believes in you, because when it comes to the museums, it's not just someone, it's not like a gallery that, hey, let's work together, you'll sell some 
I'll make money, you make money. With a gallery, there's so much more at stake. They have investors, they have board, they have members, they have, you know, they have the history of being an establishment like this. So when they believe in you, it's almost like, you know, we, we don't need the credibility, but it's almost that credibility of like, wow, like, okay, like somebody sees something bigger than, you know, what I just see maybe. Yeah, and, you know, it's definitely a beautiful feeling. That was Chicago-based artist Joseph Perez, also known as Scent Rock. His solo exhibit, The Boy Wanted to Fly, is on display at the Elmhurst Art Museum through January 15, 2023. Scent Rock has also created a line of Bird City Saint merch that's being sold at the museum's gift shop. Also of note, the exhibit represents the final leg of the museum's year-long 25th anniversary celebration. You can go to Find more information at elmhurstartmuseum.org. You're tuned into the arts section. A quick reminder, if you enjoy the show every Sunday morning, make sure to check out the program's website over at theartssection.org. You can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures that go along with all the features you hear on the program. Check out theartssection.org. Also a reminder that you can always reach out to me if you have a comment, question, or suggestion. My email address is gzydic at wdcb.org, or you can find me on Instagram or Twitter at On Air Gary. And you are listening to the arts section. I'm Gary Zydek. Joining me now remotely are the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Gary. Good morning, Gary. Chicago's annual showcase of Latino theater, Destinos, kicked off a couple weeks ago. Today we're going to talk about Teatro Vista's entry into the festival, a world premiere titled Enough to Let the Light In. Carrie, I'll turn to you for the, the setup, but everything I've read about this play describes it as a psychological thriller. Yeah, and I would say with emphasis on both the psychology and the thriller part. Uh, the play by Paloma Nozica, as you mentioned, it is a world premiere. Uh, she's a Mexican-American playwright. There's not a lot of specific Latino content to this, I would say, but um, the setup is that we have Mark and Cynthia, a lesbian couple of about eight months standing. When we meet them, they're coming home from a date. They're at Cynthia's house, and for the first time, Cynthia is inviting Mark inside. It seems like all their other evenings have ended at Mark's house. So this is the first sign that maybe something is a little bit off in Cynthia's world. Um, small signs accumulate. There's a closet door that she insists be kept open. She leaves a bowl of dry cereal, you know, sitting out for reasons that we're unsure of. A painting that she did, uh, she used to make her living as an artist and now works in an art supply store, keeps falling off the wall. Um, but that doesn't seem to be enough to deter Mark, who is a therapist. She chooses this night to propose to Cynthia. Cynthia accepts for a while, of, you know, for a few little bits of time, things seem to be well. And this play all takes place in real time, I should mention. Um, but then things keep accumulating. Things get creepier. Things get darker. Secrets are revealed. I will not tell our listeners what they are because I don't want to get into spoilers territory. But it really is not just about the spooky what-ifs that might be within Cynthia's house. It's about what we don't know about the people we love what does it mean to fully accept someone with all those secrets? So I think for me, and I'd love to hear your take on this, Jonathan, the, the, the balance of both the psychology and the thrills is what makes this show special. <laughs> well, you know, uh, it, it strikes me as a little weird, Carrie, <laughs> Carrie, that you would date someone for eight months without ever having been inside her house, her big, old, oak-trimmed house, <laughs> I might I might add, but that's a given circumstance of this world premiere, uh, as we have noted. And uh, as you have said, Carrie, this, on this night of nights, when, when Cynthia finally invites Mark inside, Mark quickly pops out a ring and proposes, and everything seems hunky-dory for a few minutes. But then in the next hour, and I don't think this is too much of a spoiler, 
Mark discovers that Cynthia either is nutty as a fruitcake or that this house genuinely is haunted. And right. As you noted, a lot of beans are spilled, and it's done in a taut, entertaining two-character thriller, which concludes, I might say, with a classic shaggy dog ending for viewers mm-hmm. to chew over. And it's precisely to the point that you said, Carrie, you know, how much, as we discover things about the people we love, what are we willing to accept? What are we willing to take at face value? Where, right. if anywhere, do we draw a line? And the play ends without a definitive conclusion about how Mark and Cynthia are going to work out. Right. I tell yeah. you, I really enjoyed myself with this show because it's well-crafted. It is suspenseful. And most of all, it is wonderfully directed and acted. And if I may, I indulge myself for a moment. I want to start with the director. The director is Georgette Verdon, a young woman who's been directing like a seasoned pro on many off-loop stages recently. And she is on her way, I think, really to a national career. Two weeks ago, I recommended Chagall in School, which is still playing at Theater Wit which Georgette Verdin also directed, although I failed to mention her name. So she's a very busy, very capable woman. Right. And I would like to ask you, Jonathan, one thing that struck me in watching this, and I don't know that we have ever discussed this on the show, so it might be an interesting way to go. I, I would maintain that doing you know anything that's sort of thriller, this isn't really horror. There's not gore. I want to make sure that people listening understand right. that. There's not bloodshed. You know, it's all, it's, hence the psychology. It's more what you think might be happening or what may happen that, that really sets us up. But it's harder, I think, to do that in live theater than with film. You don't have the editing, you know, that can kind of direct, misdirect. Um, so I think it's a, a, it's a higher bar, and I agree with you that Georgette Burden and her wonderful cast, which is Melissa Dupre and Lissandra Tena, as Mark and Cynthia respectively, really lean into that. Um, but I think also just the production values themselves lent themselves very well to creating this sort of atmospheric, creepy creepy world. And I'm, you know, I'm trying to think of other shows that have done it well. Certainly, Woman in Black is, a, is by now a, cla- a contemporary classic, I think, of the horror genre. But what has your experience been with like thrillers on stage, Jonathan? What do you think, from your view, what are the particular challenges the genre presents you know, that are unique to theater versus you know, you know, the cinematic experience? I think it's what you said. You have to keep the, the tautness, the tension, mm-hmm. the suspense which film can do uh, and it can shock you with fast cuts, quick cuts. It's like, it's like, it's like, don't open that basement door. Right. <laughs> we scream at the movie, at the movie theater screen. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> Whatever you do, don't lock yourself in. You right. Know. It, yeah. It, so the trick when you're doing it live is to maintain the suspense, uh, to disguise and pace the shocks and surprises so that they remain shocks and surprises mm-hmm. for the audience um, and not to give anything away and and this does that in fact in fact if I had a piece of advice to the playwright Paloma Nozika this world premiere I would say you know you could take it even a little further as yeah. far as I'm concerned right. a little yeah. bit more yeah. but I, I, I yeah, they call them jump scares and I know that I and the yeah. person sitting next to me definitely jumped at a few points and you know I wanted to I mentioned the production elements and I think this is particularly worth yes. mentioning the set designer Sotirios Lopidaitis and sound designer Stephanie M. Senior in particular I think are the real heavy hitters and the MVPs in terms of this. Again, this is nothing that's super overstated, um, and I think that makes it even more effective. You know, when that when you, you literally hear that bump in the night or that noise that you're not sure what it is, and you start putting the pieces together, that's what makes this show really special. And I think also what I like about this play is that Nozika is assuming that we're smart. You know, that we're going to start putting like maybe we, we we don't get too far ahead, but I don't feel like and maybe this speaks to the shaggy dog ending that you were talking about, Jonathan, that, that she's yeah. leaving things for us to decide. You know, one interesting twist, I and mean, we have Mark, who is the therapist, Cynthia, who is the artist. So at first I thought, oh, this is going to be the rational versus, you know, the emotional, right? But there's a little twist in that Mark is a believer. Mark goes to church. Mark talks about looking for signs. Mark talks about still talking to her dead father. And then when Cynthia starts telling her story, which seems, quite unbelievable, again, not giving any spoilers, it really does raise this point of, well, where does faith become irrationality? You know, why, why is your believing this 
absolutely an understandable thing that I accept about you, but me having this story is something that you find, yep. you know, a little too far. Yep. And I think that's a really smart, smart uh, way of developing these characters and getting past these sorts of binaries of, as I said, the rational versus irrational. Like, there's a little yep. bit of all yep. of that in both of them. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I agree with you on that, and I also agree with you on the physical production, right, which I wanted to comment comment on. It's excellent. It's this show is being done. It's it's it's, produ- it's, it's uh, produced by Teatro Vista, but they're using the Steppenwolf seventeen hundred theater as their venue. The Steppenwolf seventeen hundred theater is in theory a black box theater, a studio theater, uh, but it's uh, uh, on the spacious spacious side and versatile side for a black box theater. And the scenic designer has constructed, well, a big old oak-trimmed house uh, with the audience in an L-shape on two sides, which is a configuration you don't see all that often. Uh, And despite its size, and it's a fairly large set, you see several different rooms, uh, adjoining rooms of the house, Despite the size, it feels warm and cozy, and I think that has a lot to do with the lighting designer, Emma, De- Emma Dean, who has created yeah, a yeah, fairly complex mm-hmm. lighting screen. Yeah. I also love the set decoration, and uh, Lene Hickman uh, has done all that, and it's perfect right down to uh, the old LP record albums, uh, which are barely used. They are used once. And uh, they perfectly select the correct album by the Zombies, if anyone remembers them besides me. (laughs) Sounds like two recommendations. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, obviously this is the season when people do start doing, you know, more ghostly stories. Um, This is is really, again, I I think it's because of the emphasis on the psychology and because Paloma Nozika's play really asks us to invest in these characters, I felt that it was as emotionally rich as it was just on the you know just the thrill the surface thrills were one thing but um i you know i really cared about what was happening to these women and i think that's a really key point for my enjoyment of, uh, yeah. of enough to let the light in and uh, i would add only that uh, carrie as you have pointed out this is presented by Teatro Vista as part of destinos the chicago international mm-hmm. latino theater festival but unlike most festival shows, this one is really not specifically Latinx in theme or sure. story or characters, which is just fine. Right. Certainly creating <laughs> a good theatrical thriller is an appealing goal for any playwright and any theater company, and Ms. Nozika and Teatro Vista have succeeded. Right. It's interesting, because I know one of the plays that's coming up later is Barricaro Gamboya, their play... The Wizards, which, from what I've read, also involves, you know, some ghost stories. And I was just reading an interview with Ricardo Gamboya, and they said, you know, there's a big Mexican thing. If you go to Mexico, people sit around and talk about the ghost I saw in the cornfield or the, you know, um, the, the, the sort of accepting that there's the spirit world, you know, alongside. So in that sense, I think, yes, it does fit in well with certain um, Latinx traditions, particularly for this time of year. But it, it's not specifically rooted in the fact that these characters are meant to be uh, Latinx, although the actors, you know, certainly are. All right. Teatro Vista's Enough to Let the Light In continues at Steppenwolf Theater through October 23rd. It's part of Destino's, the Chicago International Latino Theater Festival. And before we wrap up, uh, we did want to touch on a little bit of local theater news. A Chicago-based theater organization announced it was closing its doors. Underscore Theater, which some of our listeners may not be as familiar with, I always knew the the organization as the presenter of a musical theater festival that took place pre-pandemic, all new work. But did Underscore produce their own work? They have produced work. This is not a company with a long, long history. I think they have been around for, I would say, no more than a decade, maybe even a little bit less than that. And musicals were their thing. They presented the annual uh, Festival of New Work musical, and they also did present, uh, you know, fully staged musicals for uh, regular runs in a tiny storefront yeah. theater on Clark Street near near Wilson. Uh, and they have decided the the times being what they are, the pressures of the pandemic to uh, fold their tents. They do have some uh, uh, means apparently. They still have some money in the bank, and they have their. Uh, New Works Festival, and they're turning all of this over to the care of Co-Candy Productions, a larger and successful 
producer of musical theater. We talked about it uh, uh, just a week ago when we discussed their production of Sweeney Todd, the demon barber of mm-hmm. Fleet Street. So Cocandy will be taking this over, and in the future, they haven't announced specific plans yet. They will continue uh, with the annual you know, festival of new musicals. Yeah, and I, yeah, I think it's a loss because there's something nice about having these sort of intimate musical companies. Um, I, I, one of the shows that I quite enjoyed was Underscore, I think it was back in 2019, in the before times, it was called The Ballad of Lefty and, uh, the Ballad of Lefty and Crab, and it was yeah, sort of a tale of vaudeville. That. Yeah, and I thought that was just a delightful show in their little storefront, you know, near Montrose and, and Clark, and, um, so yeah, and I, and I, I think that there's, uh, there's always a sense of loss, but as you said, Jonathan, they seem to be, finding a way to keep their legacy going even if they're not going to be producing this underscore anymore by uh, letting that musical festival go over to the uh, well, I'm sure will be the very loving you know, <laughs> curatorship and care of, of Cook Andy, which also has you know done a lot of work in smaller spaces, including Sweeney Todd at the Chopin as we as we recently talked about. Yes. And they certainly, underscore certainly has been much more upfront and open about their decision and what's going on <laughs> than those folks at Victory Gardens. Yes, indeed. (laughs) And we were talking earlier before we came on air just about how I think there was some uncertainty about how local theaters would emerge once the pandemic started to to wind down. In 2020 and 2021, there was a lot of speculation about which theater companies would survive given how much of a gap there was uh, with organizations not being able to, to put on new work and generate revenue. Here we are in the fall of 2022, and I know some things are still to be determined, but I'd have to say that we haven't seen a, as many closures as I, I once thought. I was just thinking that it's, I, I was expecting a, a many more theater companies to fall by the wayside, quite honestly. Um, so I'm pleasantly surprised that, um, you know, they have not, you know, it's always sad, but I think, Jonathan, you've seen it you know, for many years, too. Companies come along, they do good work, and then at some point they all just, you know, in best yeah. case, they decide, you know, like another company we've seen several times, First Folio, this is their last season, um, and they've just decided it's time for them to, you know, out in Oak Park, or sorry, Oak Brook, that, you know, they, they've reached a point to put a, you know, put put the punctuation at the end of right. the long sentence, right. and and I think that that's honorable. You know, it's it's. I think the, as you mentioned, it's it's the. Um, I think the distress comes when you feel like you're not being told. You know what what is exactly happening when people feel like they've been left holding the bag or left out in the cold. Um, but certainly, you know, when a company can continue its legacy in some ways, underscores. And I, yeah. it, you know, I feel I feel bad, and I appreciate the work they put in. But it's not as if these artists are going to go away either. A company goes away, the artists continue. So right, and it, it needs to be said that the last two years, the last two years plus even three years, it hasn't just been the pandemic. It hasn't been a matter of 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 of, of always financial reasons why a theater mm-hmm. has shuttered. We know that a number of companies uh, have gone through massive personnel changes sure. because of the uh, Black Lives Matter and, and BIPOC mm-hmm. movements, uh, which organized uh, essentially a protest movement within American professional theater, and it's had uh, uh, major ramifications, uh, some of them good, and positive, and others not so much. And so there can be a lot of different reasons why a company um, disappears. I don't think that there are any of those reasons in the case of Underscore. I think that the fact that it was a small company and just uh, that didn't have a uh, a large subscription audience base or anything like that, so it was just uh, economically not feasible for them to pick up and start again. We'll continue to keep our listeners up to date on what's going on. We'll see uh, Carrie and Jonathan next week. Thanks so much. You're welcome. You're most welcome. I'm Gary Zydek. This is the Arts Section. The Museum of Contemporary Art is bringing back its popular Family Days series. The museum will be presenting special programming aimed at younger audiences every second Saturday starting this month all the way through May. The hope is the Family Days series will lay the foundation for a future generation of curious minds. 
The first family day of the season is set for this Saturday, October 8th. Families can enjoy free admission to the museum and partake in a variety of special performances and workshops. I recently caught up with Christiana Castillo, the museum's manager of learning youth interpretive programs, to talk about her hopes for the series. A good place to start would just be getting a sense of the programming philosophy for family days. Absolutely. So family days at its core is supposed to be an open invitation to all families throughout Chicago, throughout Illinois, to come to the Museum of Contemporary Art for free, enjoy um, artist-led workshops, performances, um, and really to just really include families at the museum and make them feel incredibly welcomed. It's like a family takeover day at the museum. So it's always really lovely. The energy is always just fantastic. But we're doing work to, you know, have greater understanding of what's going on with the exhibitions for families, making connections there. But also it's very much rooted um, and having social and emotional learning activities and social justice oriented activities as well. So there is a connection sometimes to the exhibits going on at the museum? Yeah, absolutely. So on October 8th, it's our return to family days and we will have an art making activity that's connected to our Calder exhibition that's currently on view. So Alexander Calder was known for making these great mobiles. So we'll have Miriam Bahina Cardona Bisby here. She's an amazing teaching artist here in Chicago and she'll be making mobiles that tell stories with youth and their families. And so since you brought up the event on the 8th, I saw something also. There's going to be a Korean music ensemble. Yeah, Sorry Beat is going to be here. We're so excited. It's a Korean youth ensemble. So there will be traditional music and dance performances here in our theater that we definitely want families to check out. It's kind of an ode to our exhibit that we have for Gregory Bay. He was a Korean-American artist who was um, located here in Chicago but sadly passed away um, fairly recently. So families are definitely invited to check out that show and then listen to traditional Korean music and see the performances. And then there's also going to be a, a drag story hour. Yeah, drag queen story hour, an MCA family favorite. We've had them before, and they'll be kicking off um, our return to family days this fall. Yeah, Mrs. Ukulele will is is going to be here at the museum for an hour with an American Sign Language interpreter with her. Um, to read stories and have dance breaks and yeah, yeah most of the stories um, that she's going to be reading are super like social and emotional learning, social justice based, so we're really excited to have her. So then how does the day play out? Family comes and then can they like pick and choose which activities they want to take part in? Absolutely, it's choose your own adventure. Um, they get to pick and choose just, you know, to have more options. Of course, they can just like view the exhibitions at their own leisure, but we want to have, you know, things for families to engage with as well um, and really give them the special attention they deserve. To go back to when you're programming this, do you think about like age ranges for like this one coming up on the 8th? Yeah, so usually family day we have youth 12 and under coming through, but I firmly believe that like anybody could engage with any of the activities um, and have a blast. Like at past family days we've had like group of like chosen like LGBTQ family teens come through and like listen to drag queen story hour and of course like it is for children but like I know those teens had a fabulous time as well and um, I've seen adults really get a lot out of our family day programming as well so everyone's encouraged to take part in it. Castile already has the programs lined up for November and December. In November, we're going to have a really rad group called Freedom From and Freedom To come through. It's going to be 20 performers here at the MCA. They're musicians and movement-based folks, and they will at random be put into small groups and just do improv dance and music performance, and families will be invited to move with them, and we'll have some instruments for the little ones to um, play with as well. 
Um, in December, we're going to have a performance with Las Bomplaneras. They're an all-woman um, bomba in plena group. Um, they will be coming to perform on the fourth floor, and that's when we're going to have our new show, Forecast Form, Art in the Caribbean Diaspora on view. Um, a lot of art-making activities in December. Amara Martinez, also known as Rebel Betty, she's going to be here and making collages based off of um, the Forecast Form exhibition with youth and their family. So a lot of art-making and performance is in the future. November is going to be rad because we're going to have Sky Art. Um, they are located on the south side of Chicago. They're going to be bringing two of their teaching artists in um, and doing social and emotional learning-based art-making activities. We'll also have Hubbard Street Dance Chicago teaching artists in the house doing social and emotional based um, movement activities. So the goal for November is for families to really kind of have like this toolkit of activities that they can take home with them. So we know the school year has started up again. So there are like some great breathing exercises that we'll be sharing and um, movement activities, art making activities that they can take home and use in the future. And then just to tie it back full circle, you kind of alluded to it at the the beginning, but as far as how the Family Day series fits into the museum's overall mission, is the hope then that exposing these young people to some of this stuff creates this lifelong connection to the museum? Oh, absolutely. The Museum of Contemporary Art is for everybody. And I think sometimes when we think about art museums, we very much think like, oh, they're for adults. But the MCA is for everybody, and that includes youth. But our hope really is that like we will just be one of the many museums they touch during their lifetime and really get exposed to different forms of artwork. The MCA is unique in the fact that um, we have a high focus on visual arts, but we also are one of the first contemporary art museums to really value performance as well. And we want to make sure that the youth of Chicago and visitors from elsewhere really are exposed to that and hopefully, you know, make their worlds a little bit bigger, expanding their worlds a bit, hopefully starting a lifelong love for the arts with them. Castillo also wanted to highlight the fact that the term family isn't meant to be exclusionary. The Family Day series is open to anyone and everyone. The MCA has a really expansive view of what family is, so that's inclusive of chosen family as well. And it can also be adults coming as a family. Like, you don't have to have a little one with you to access Family Day, which I just think is really important for everybody to know. It's definitely a familial and communal experience, um, and we want to invite everybody. And then just on the flip side of that, uh, for families, you don't just have to come on Family Day. Of course, you can come to the, the museum anytime. It's just these programs are, are special on the family days. Absolutely. Folks 18 and under always get into the museum for free. Free admission is always um, included for them. Anytime families want to come, they're invited, of course, when we're open. <laughs> but especially family day. It's just a really fabulous day to see the museum activated with family members and you. That was Christiana Castillo, the Museum of Contemporary Arts Manager of Learning, Youth Interpretive Programs. The MCA's Family Day series kicks off this Saturday, October 8th. It's free to families and will continue every second Saturday of the month through May. You can find more information at mcachicago.org. <music> And you are listening to the arts section. My name's Gary Zydek. This past June, Wheaton-based Cantini introduced its first-ever public art project. The former estate of the late Robert McCormick became home to around 50 dreamlike creature sculptures called Alebrijes. Alebrije is actually an artistic creation that was dreamed up by Pedro Linares and literally dreamed up. This is Sarah Phelan. She's the chair of DuPage's Mexican Cultural Center, the organization that helped make this new public art project a reality. 
The origins of these imaginative sculptures can be traced back to a Mexican artist who had a fever dream. In the 1930s, Pedro Linares had a fever dream. If you've ever had one of those fever dreams where you're just so out of it, he was very, very ill. So he's in this dream and he's walking down a forest path and there's all these different creatures, amalgamations of different animals, to mythical beings, and they're all saying, aleblije, aleblije. And so that word actually has no translation. It's just from his dream, which everybody keeps saying, what does it mean in English? It means aleblije in English. So he comes out of this fever dream and from there creates an aleblije. He was a cartonero or a paper mache artist in Mexico City. And so he then uses his paper mache skills and creates these aleblijes. And it becomes an art form that many different people pick up, but also in different areas. So in Oaxaca, you'll find wood aleblijes, which are more indigenous inspired painted wood. But the ones in Mexico City, the traditional aleblijes are the paper mache structures. For those communities that do celebrate with alebrijes, is it like a Day of the Dead type thing? It is now especially. In Mexico City, they now do La Noche de los Alebrijes in like it's a parade in Mexico City each November. And it is tied to Day of the Dead in the way of almost a spiritual animal, although traditionally it wasn't always necessarily tied that way. I visited Cantini to get an up-close look at the installation titled Alebrijes, Creatures of a Dream World, back when it first opened in June. The good news is, for those folks who haven't made it out there, the papier-mâché sculptures will remain on display through October 30th. Phelan says the West Chicago-based Mexican Cultural Center introduced the idea for an outdoor Alebrijes exhibition to Cantini around five years ago. We reached out to them about 2017, right around the time Coco, the movie came out, the Pixar movie, which was great because then we had that pop culture connection so people could understand a little bit more what Nalibrije is. Because although it's very well known in Mexico City and in Oaxaca, it's not even well known throughout Mexico necessarily. And then in the United States, even our Mexican communities here don't all know what an Alebrije is. But when we reached out to Cantini, they said, sure, let's keep talking about it. They had never done a large scale art project like this either, cultural exchange. Um, and then during the pandemic, as we all thought like, what are we gonna do next? You know, how do we move our work forward? This is an outside exhibition. So it's kind of COVID proof. It's a wonderful way to showcase and bring back that economic drivers, but also to our Latino community that's been hit so hard by COVID economically, medically, mentally. Um, it's really a wonderful celebration. So when we approached them and said, you know, we want to bring three artists and maybe 18 alebrijes, and they said, well, you know, we have a big park, let's do a few more. Which is how we landed at six artists and 48 alebrijes sculptures. Vengo de una comunidad al sur de la Ciudad de México que se llama Xochimilco. This is Alejandro Camacho Barrera, one of the six Mexican artists who's created work for this project. With the help of translator Robert Enriquez, I talked to Barrera about his artistic process for creating alebrijes. Las imágenes que creamos en el cerebro eh, son ideas. Ideas that we have cannot really be seen, so the first step for us is to have the idea and then to pass that concept to a two-dimensional figure drawn on paper. After I have the idea or the concept on two dimensions, then I start adding a three-dimensional factor and three-dimensional uh, pieces to it so that then the final form begins to take place. After I start having the basic outline in three dimensions, a dialogue begins between myself and the figure. And it starts telling me where to place more forms or more pieces and also adding color. And after a while that dialogue goes back and forth until finally the piece is actually finished when the form or the entity within that art form is telling me that's pretty much it. Don't, don't put any more extensions, don't put any more forms to me, don't add any more colors. You really are finished. I'm finished. Once the author has completed the work, then the piece actually has acquired its own personality and it no longer directs any questions or comments or ideas to the author. The author has finished his participation in that dialogue. From that point forward, 
it's the actual personality of the alebrije that's speaking to the observer at any given moment. Whatever the person wants to un understand from that alebrije, that's what the alebrije will tell them. So a lot of creative energy goes to, to creating these pieces. Do you have hopes for what viewers take away? Siempre espero que ella le diga como somos. Once the piece is finished and has acquired its own personality, I always hope deep down that it communicates about us, about Mexico, about the colors of Mexico, the cultural Mexico, and some of the background of our history. And I hope that they communicate the respect and the love and the hopes and dreams of our country and that people appreciate them in a way that is distinct to themselves. Taking into account, of course, how they were created with the love that they were created and with the interest that we have for Alebrijes. Our artwork is really like as our children. We nurture them, create them, nurture them, give them life, and then send them on their way on whatever path they choose or whatever path they will take to tell about us and to communicate to others and begin a dialogue between themselves and others beyond our reach or beyond where we are physically. Hey, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Arts Section on WDCB. I'm Gary Zydek. I'm talking to the various people who made the new Alabrijes installation at Wheaton-based Cantini a reality. It's absolutely beautiful to see these creatures. They're, they're just like a mix of different creatures, and, and they always try to guess what, the, what each creature, what a mix of animals it, it is. Fernando Ramirez is the founder and president of DuPage's Mexican Cultural Center. It was his idea that launched this whole project. He says it's exciting to see the sculptures in person at Cantini. Ramirez enjoys telling people who aren't familiar with this art form that these sculptures are made out of paper mache. Once I tell them, you know, it's, it's craft paper. It's cardboard. And so they have to do a double take and look, wait a minute. And they're like, that is craft paper? That is cardboard? Like that, you just did that? And they're like, yes, that's, this is what they've been doing for, you know, since the uh, 30s. This is a, a family trade. So they're very well experienced in, in, this, in this trade. And then the bomb drops on them and they realize, holy cow, all of those are, are these uh, materials that can just basically be broken the next day. Uh, most of the artists work though about 90% of the pieces are recycled materials. So they have the metal frame structures, um, even tin cans, chicken wire, and then they get layers and layers of the paper mache. And then we put on a, a special varnish for them here to sustain the Illinois weather. These six selected artists created the alebrijes in Mexico and then shipped them to Cantini. Once the sculptures arrived in the U.S., it was Cantini's director of horticulture, Scott Whitty's job to find places on the park's grounds to put them. Whitty and his team created an alebrije trail of sorts for visitors to follow. Where each piece would lead you on to the next one. Visitors, after they view one, they can oftentimes see the next one off in the horizon. And there are even instances where there's a type of allure, like you can only see a tail or, a or the tip of a wing, and you're like, ooh, what's over there? And that's on the other side of a, a six-foot hedge or something like that. The big whale is another example of that as it's situated in between two large hills on the right side of our prairie view area where you just get a small glimpse of it, but it, it draws you over there, it kind of creates that allure mm -hmm. to draw you through the park. Another thing Woody did was research specific types of flora that could tie into the Alabrije experience. And as soon as we learned that it was a good, there was a good chance that we were going to get the Alabrijes exhibit, my horticultural team began to design around the vibrant colors of the Alabrijes pieces. And so we, we did our research with regard to what uh, flowers are relevant with regard to Mexico. And it may come to many people's surprise that uh, Mexico in general is, is a very diverse habitat for a, a, a diverse uh, amount of floral species. Um, one in particular, you know, we incorporated the dahlia. The dahlia is the national flower of Mexico. 
used to be utilized both uh, medicinally and also for its beauty, obviously, but uh, both the tuber of the plant and the flower of the plant were utilized in uh, Mexican culture. Um, another example is the Mexican marigold, which is used heavily uh, during the Day of the Dead um, celebration. Um, the Mexican petunia, we worked in some of the design on our what we call the canoe beds up in, in the front of the visitor center. So there are several examples of this throughout the park. But another good example with the vibrant colors, one of the varieties of lantana that we utilized has a very fruity smell to it, but its orange, its bright orange tones almost match perfectly some of the uh, near fluorescent orange yellow tones that are used in, in the turtle in one of the canoe beds in front. So there are lots of examples of that that, that just kind of reverberate through a lot of the floral design. As you see the, the pieces scattered throughout the park, you're also going to see these tremendously vibrant colors from some of these flowers that we chose based on their connection to Mexico and its culture. The horticulture team's efforts are representative of the collaborative spirit surrounding the project. Ramirez, who had the initial idea to create a public art project based around the Alabrijas, says a lot of stakeholders had to come together to make the project a reality. When we presented it to Cantini, they said to me, Fernando, we're trying to figure out what we're going to do. You know, it's not that we don't want to do this. This is a wonderful experience, but what we, we don't know where we're at at the time because of during this pandemic. And so I said, you know what? I went to the DCPB and I said, hey, what do you guys think about this idea? And I just presented, what do you think about this idea and this and that? And see if, if kind of maybe they'll kind of speak to them a little bit and just talk to them and kind of get hype them up a little bit about it. And, and you know, and that happened. Basically, they talked to them and they said, you know what? No, if you guys are interested, let's, let's figure something out. Let's see if we can really put this together. And uh, we finally got a chance to sit down with uh, DCBB, uh, a Cantini, and then after that, of you know, we just kept adding more uh, people that were excited to be able to to be participate. Our city of West Chicago, who came in, so as soon as they said they heard what's going to happen, and the other members are being involved, they're like, however we can support, let's let's figure let's figure this out. And and I think the biggest thing that we were all like kind of saying is like, this is during a pandemic. Worst comes to worst, we're all going to want to go outside and experience, do something outside if it gets really bad, you know. So I think at that point we all realized, you know what, you're right. Summer's going to come around. Everybody's going to want to come out. Let's give something for them to come out and, and to and to be able to do it. And it just, you know, it just worked out wonderfully. As Ramirez just mentioned, one of the keys to getting this project moving in the early stages was the work done by the DuPage Conventions and Visitors Bureau. Really the role of the Bureau is to not only facilitate meetings and conventions and conferences, but it's to put the local partners together. This is DCVB Executive Director Beth Marchetti. At the very first meeting, we had Cantini and the DuPage Mexican Cultural Center and McCormick Foundation. We went to West Chicago. We've also got um, some momentum from the Mackinac Art Center and the College of DuPage hosting the Frida Kahlo exhibit last year, where we were very strong partners and, in fact, worked with the Department of Commerce and Economic Opportunity, Illinois Office of Tourism, to help both of these exhibitions get state grant money. So very strong partnerships and I think that's what you know we are all about in DuPage is working together collaboratively to enhance the economic fiber but also just make it a better quality of life for our residents. Marchetti believes the Alabrijes installation has the potential to draw a lot of first-time visitors to Cantini and the Mexican Cultural Center is hopeful the project sheds some new light on the nuances of Mexican culture. Obviously, there's just like an aesthetic. It's pleasing just to look at something beautiful, but are you hoping that the people that come out and, and look at these take away something? Absolutely. And something that the Mexican Cultural Center tries to do all all the time is to push the variety of Mexico. You know, there's stereotypical notions of what Mexican art is, what Mexican culture is, but Mexico is a huge country and with a lot of different regions and tons of art forms. And so we hope that this also inspires people to learn a little bit more about that value vastness and the variety of art in Mexico and to explore some of the traditions behind it, the native traditions. Um, there's so much tied in with nature, with the four elements of the world that also go into these pieces. So we hope people are inspired to learn more about that as well. That's Sarah Phelan, the board chair of the DuPage Mexican Cultural Center. You can check out the vibrant one-of-a-kind Alabrije sculptures for yourself at Cantini. Alabrijes, Creatures of a Dream World, 
will be on display through October 30th. And obviously the weather is a little warmer during the summer months, but I think October is the, the perfect time to kind of walk through Cantinia and check these out as Halloween approaches. You can find more information at cantini.org. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the arts section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the program's website over at theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the show. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening.